Okay. Okay, everybody, gents and ladies, welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is Saturday, the 24th of June. Uh, and my name is uh, Johan, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Sweden. I will be your host for today. Our co-hosts today are Dottie, Nancy G, and Sue L. Thank you. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answers session. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen from any, for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the cost for our Zoom account, the cost for upload, upload, up, that's a hard word, uploading our recordings. And we also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I will turn this meeting over to Harlan G. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Johan. Thank you very much. Uh, last week, I sort of threw out there that I was toying with the idea of making this meeting an hour or two earlier because of the East Coast and Midwest people. In the, in the Midwest, it's at noon and the East Coast, it's 1 p.m. Your reactions are about 50-50. Some said yes, some said no. Some gave very various reasons why. I'm not going to touch anything until the clocks change at the very at the very least. I'm not doing anything until November. We're just going to stay with what we have until November. I'm not going to change the time yet because, as I say, your reactions were about 50-50 to that question. But I really do appreciate the numbers and the brevity of your responses. You didn't, you know, broil. You didn't give me, uh, you know, war and peace. You just said yes, move it. No, don't move it. Yes, move it. You know, different things like that. So I really appreciate that. Okay, we are talking about working with others, and this is so important. One hundred and twenty-four times in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is working with others referenced from the first page of the doctor's opinion until such time as we get to this page, there are 124 references to working with others. Silkworth talks about it, Bill talks about it, and it is referenced all over the place in this book. It's very, very important. And when Bill was a patient at the town's hospital, he realized by his spiritual experience that God had come into his life. And when God came into Bill's life, he knew, he didn't think, he didn't suspect, he knew 
that he had a mission in his life and that was to help other drunks, other alcoholics. And he became very frustrated and it was March of, Bill got sober in December of 1934, but in March of 1935, as he was leaving for Akron, Ohio, and he was gonna go there in April of 1935 because they were engaged. He had a group that was engaged in a proxy fight and they were trying to take over a company called Akron Tool and Die. Tool dye and rubber, I'm sorry. Akron is really tire town. Firestone is there. Goodyear is there. You know, BF Goodrich was there. And so it's really a, a tire driven town. And the nickname for Akron is tire town. And Bill said to Lois in March of 35, doggone it, Lois, he says, I'm, I get this signal from God. And the signal from God is that I'm supposed to sober up drunks, but nobody's getting sober. Nobody seems to be getting sober. And Lois turned to him and said, but Bill, you're staying sober. And it hit him like a ton of bricks. Yes, in the midst of all his failure to sober up even one person, he was staying sober. And so many of us, so much of the time, we get frightened about sponsorship because we want to do it perfectly. And we seem to be focused on results. You know, I get embroiled in results too. I've been in sales my whole life and I've worked for myself now for quite a long time. And you know what we say in our business, uh, if you don't kill it, you can't eat it. You know, if you don't kill it, you can't eat it because if you don't sell it, you can't make any money. Nobody's going to pay me a salary. I have to generate my own lead, not my own leads. I have to generate my own sales. Well, I get very results oriented in my business life, but I cannot be results oriented here. And sometimes it's easier or harder, depending on the situation, to sort of focus in on that. But let's just take a look at some of the things that people fear about sponsorship. Number one, we feel inadequate. And that's not true because the big book is going to do most of the heavy lifting. The doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism are all chapters that we don't have to get a PhD in, but we have to glean certain information out of those chapters. The information is in the doctor's opinion, we have the physical allergy and the twist of the mind. And we learn in the doctor's opinion that food for the compulsive overeater was never the problem. It was the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. And Dr. Silkworth tells us that when we're not eating, when we're not eating, we're restless, irritable, and discontented. You can throw in for my account, scared to death, guilt-ridden, shame-ridden, full of self-loathing, uh, angry, uh, selfish, you know, all these various emotions, even happiness is an emotion. I have eaten Chips Ahoy cookies by the carload when things were going well for me. So any emotion for me can become quite difficult. So Dr. Silkworth tells us that 
these are these are the things we have been eating over and that once we eat we cannot stop he says in the doctor's opinion any description of the alcoholic that leaves out this physical factor is incomplete any any description of the alcoholic which leaves out this description of the allergy. What is an allergy? Well, when I was about five years old, my mother took me to Dr. Friedman on Peterson Avenue and said, Harlan is sneezing constantly and blowing his nose constantly. What seems to be the matter? And Dr. Friedman told my mother, I have hay fever. I have rose fever. I'm allergic to dust and I'm allergic to certain pollens, certain other things. And from that day, I've known that I had this allergy. Obviously, I can't control the amount of pollen or the amount of, you know, ragweed or whatever that's in the air, but I have suffered my entire life from these allergies. What Dr. Friedman never told my mother was when Harlan puts any type of sugar, now I'm just talking about me, okay? I'm not, I don't want to embroil in a discussion of food when we get to questions and answers. I'm talking about me. You're, you know what they say when they advertise cars or they say your uh, gas mileage may be different depending upon on how you drive. But for me, I'm allergic to sugar. I'm allergic to fried foods. I'm allergic to certain cheeses, dairy, things like that. Please, again, this is me. It doesn't have to be you. When I eat grapes, cherries, when I eat watermelon, when I eat uh, all the, some various figs, dates, dried fruit, I can't stop eating them once I've started. And don't even talk to me about what happens in my mind or not my mind, my body, when a cashew or a peanut or anything like that enters my mouth, because I will push anybody in front of a speeding car to get at cashew nuts. I mean, I just, I, I can't, once I eat one, I'm going to make cashew nuts a, a um, an endangered species. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cause a worldwide run, a shortage on them because I just can't stop once I've started, especially if they're the salted kind that I really, the dry roasted, that's what I'm trying to think of, the dry roasted peanuts that I really like so much. But anyway, um, so he tells us that. And in Bill's story, we can see the progression of the disease because the disease is not only about the allergy and the twist of the mind. The disease is also permanent, progressive, and if untreated, it is fatal. Permanent, progressive, and un if it's untreated, it's fatal. So we have a choice. We can die from the disease or we can die with the disease. I'd rather die with the disease than from the disease. And in Bill's story, we see the history of his life, the history of step two, and we see the progression of this disease in Bill's life. And if we're if we know what we're looking for, we can see how he drinks worse and worse and worse and worse all through the first eight pages. And in the second eight pages, his life gets better and better and better. And in Bill's story, what I do with people is we look, do you think the way Bill thinks? Do you eat the way Bill drinks? I'm going to say that again so that you can write it down. In Bill's story, 
Do I think the way Bill thinks? Do I eat the way Bill drinks? That's what I'm looking for when I'm sponsoring through Bill's story. And there is a solution. It's very important that we start to embrace the concept that it is an illness, that it's not a moral issue, that it's not something that happened because I'm stupid. And it's not something that happened because I went to Mather High School instead of South Shore High School. It's not something that happened because I lived on the north side rather than the south side or what, or, or maybe because I'm stupid or I'm an idiot or whatever. No, nothing of the kind is true. It happened because it happened. One of my favorite stories in the back of the book isn't such a great story, but I love it because of its title. And the title of the story that I like so much in the back of the book is because I'm an alcoholic, no other reason need be given. And when I go through the there is a solution chapter, there is other there's things that I want to point out to people. But what I love pointing out to people is the title of the chapter. There is a solution because for thousands and thousands of years, there was no solution to this uh, illness. And there is a solution for me. I'm not speaking for you. If some other way works for you, God bless you. You know, it says in the big book, we have no monopoly on God. We have no monopoly on any of this. For me, there is a solution. And that solution is within the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, in my favorite chapter in the book, more about alcoholism, the true, the uh, original title of the chapter, and they made them change it, was more truth about alcoholism. And Hank Parkhurst said, it makes us seem like we're experts on alcoholism, and we're not. So he changed it to more about alcoholism. And in more about alcoholism, we see that the disease is permanent, progressive, and if untreated, fatal. And we see in chapter three, more about alcoholism, the wisdom of Richard Peabody. Richard Peabody wrote a book called The Common Sense of Drinking. Now, I know that's not a conference approved book, so please don't call Los Angeles and please don't tell on me. Please get a life, get a hobby. Don't be calling Albuquerque and don't be calling me and, and telling me I'm pushing a nun. I'm just telling you the etymology. I'm telling you the history of where we get our knowledge from. So please, I'm aware it's not conference approved. I'm giving you the title of it so you know a little more, but please don't overreact to that. I'm, I'm really tired of having that argument. I really am. So more about alcoholism shows us that no matter how long I'm sober or abstinent, that in and of itself does not treat the illness. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He, he decided he was not going to touch another drop until he had been successful in business. He did. He was sober for 25 years. He didn't touch a drop. Out came his carpet slippers in a bottle, and he was dead within four years. 
So it shows me that no matter how long I'm abstinent, the disease is continuing to progress. And no matter what happens, when I sponsor people, one of the first things I say to them is, well, I've got a little bad news. Yesterday, your disease while you were sleeping got worse. So what are you, what is your plan of action today? What you going to do with that information? Because your disease got worse. Okay, so and in in the the uh, in the uh, jaywalker, we see how in every sentence of the jaywalker, the disease gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it is this progressive property, the permanent progressive and fatal. My friend Craig in uh, Oklahoma says permanent, progressive and fatal. Permanent, progressive and fatal. So we see that this, these are the properties of the disease because the man of 30, he started drinking. He was dead within four years. Now, I won't go through in detail chapter four, we agnostics, that's step two. Chapter five, how it works, are the most misunderstood steps, three and four. And chapter six, into action, are steps five through 11. And chapter seven, working with others, is very obviously step 12. So I let the big book do the heavy lifting. And the other reason that people hesitate from sponsoring is they're unsure of themselves. This is a disease of insecurity. This is a disease of self-loathing. This is a disease of self-doubt. This is a disease that ransacks every part, not only of our life, but of our psyche, of our personality, of everything we do. And many of us doubt ourselves. We doubt ourselves tremendously. There may be other reasons that we have doubt in ourselves, but a lot of it comes from the fact that we have sworn to God that we were not going to eat that anymore or not going to go there anymore and eat that. And there we were standing in line waiting for it to be given to us. So we have let ourselves down many, many times. And we are not in the results business. We are not in the business of deciding who is going to recover and who is not going to recover. That is not what we're about here. If somebody wants to recover, Mickey Mouse and Bozo the Clown could sponsor them. And if they don't want to recover, Bill Wilson could sponsor them and it will make no difference. And, and the bottom line here is if they want to recover, you can't say the wrong thing. And if they don't want to recover, you can't say the right thing. And before I leave this subject as, as a precursor to our today, our discussion of today, just remember this. It's not a program for people who need it. It is not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And that is always supersedes, that always supersedes any other factor. If you're sponsoring someone and they're taking that action, they are going to recover. If they don't take that action, they are not going to recover. It's just not going to happen. We're on page 98. We're on page 98. Now the domestic problem. 
page 98, now the domestic problem, okay? There may be divorce, now the domestic problem. There may be divorce, separation, or just strained relations. When your prospect has made such reparations, step nine, as he can to his family and has thoroughly explained to them the new principles by which he is living, the principles are the steps. He should proceed to put those principles into action at home. That is, if he is lucky enough to have a home. Though his family may be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague in many homes. This is a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. If persisted in for a few months, the effect on a man's family is sure to be great. The most incompatible people discover they have a basis upon which they can meet. Little by little, the family may see their own defects and admit them. These can then be discussed in an atmosphere of helpfulness and friendliness. In a word, if you're sponsoring someone, stay out of their domestic disputes. Stay out of it. We are not marriage counselors. We are not relationship therapists. We are none of those things. Sponsor the person that you're sponsoring. Get that person through the steps. God will take care of the rest. It's up to God what happens beyond what you can do. And the only thing we can really do is work the person through or guide the person through the working of the steps. That is really all we can do at that point. I'm on page 99. After they have seen tangible results, the family will, will perhaps want to go along. These things will come to pass naturally and in good time. Provided, however, the alcoholic continues to demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful. Remember that the greatest thing you can do for anyone who wants to recover is to model that recovery in what you do. I try to do that. I do the best I can. Sometimes I'm more successful than other times. Sometimes my behavior may not be as great as I'd like it to be, but I'm doing the best I can to model recovering behavior for the people in my environment. I do the very best that I can. Okay. So of course, all, oh wait, uh, okay, be helpful regardless of what anyone says or does. Of course, we all fall much below this standard many times, but we must try to repair the damage immediately lest we pay the penalty by a spree. I had a very um, fortunate history in OA, and this is what I learned along the way. I had a sponsor long time ago. He was a great big guy. And he I, I, you've heard me talk about him before. And he used to put his finger in my chest on Saturday. We would meet at a place on Lincoln Avenue in Chicago on the north side. And it was a place that we would go after the meeting at the Lincoln Park Alano Club. If you're from Chicago, you've probably been to meetings at the Lincoln Park Alano Club. And I heard some 
outrageously amazing speakers there, like Wino Joe and you know, different guys that came through there. What, a, what an adventure. And he told me something I try to remember every day of my life. He taught me on a February afternoon, do you want to know if you're in recovery? Here's the benchmark. If everywhere you went today, everything you said and did today, everything that came in and out of your mouth was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? Because if you're not, chances are you are engaging in behaviors that you want kept secret unto you. And that is the disease in its active form. If I am engaging in behaviors that I would not want known, I am probably practicing this disease. So this is something that he taught me. And I try to remember that every day of my life, if everything you did today, everywhere you went, except, you know, the bathroom or something, but everywhere you went, everything you did, everything that came in and out of your mouth was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. Are you okay with that? So those are some of the things I learned along the way that really can help me when I conjure them up in my brain. Page 99, if there be divorce or separation, there should be no undue haste for the couple to get together. Again, this is an area that the sponsor is not probably going to engage in. All you can do is work the person that you're sponsoring through the steps. You cannot dispense marital advice or relationship counseling as to when separated people should or should not get back together. You may offer some opinion here and there on different things, but the best course of action is stay out of it. Okay, the man should be sure of his recovery. The wife should fully understand his new way of life. If their old relationship is to be resumed, it must be on a better basis. Since the former did not work, this means a new attitude and spirit all around. Sometimes it is to the best interest of all concerned that a couple remain apart. Obviously, no rule can be laid down. Let the alcoholic continue his program day by day. When the time for living together has come, it will be apparent to both parties. Let no alcoholic say he cannot recover unless he has his family back. And we've covered that. Do not lay conditions on God. I can't get my, if I can't get my job back, I can't recover. If I can't get my wife back, if I can't do this, or if my car doesn't get fixed, or my dog doesn't come back home, I can't recover. You're in a, you're in a fight. You just can't win. You're in a fight you can't win. This is this just isn't so. In some cases, the wife will never come back for one reason or another. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. A number of years ago, I think seven years ago or six years ago, more like seven at this point, I got a call from somebody very early in the morning. I just started my walk and it was a cold November morning, cold for Arizona. It was a November morning. And this woman said to me, I will not be back at any OA meetings. I do not believe in God and I am not going to stay abstinent. I am not going to be in recovery. And I said, 
well, that's your choice, but why not? And she told me that because the presidential election had not gone her way, she was so disappointed that she was going to begin eating and she didn't care. I said, well, we cannot carry the burden of the world on our shoulders, but walk me through how the presidential election gets changed by you eating chunky bars. How does the presidential election affect you personally to the point where you're going to crap away years of your life and die earlier than you might have by eating. What walk me through that? And she couldn't, of course. She couldn't. I never heard from her again. I haven't heard from this person in seven years. And this is a person who was way up in weight. I mean, like way up in weight. And so whatever, you know, whatever floats your boat. But when I start to lay conditions on God, like I can't, I'm not going to be abstinent until my wife comes back. I'm not going to be abstinent until my kid graduates Harvard. Whatever that may be, I am I'm passing gas in a hurricane. That is not something that is going to be at all productive on any level whatsoever. There is just nothing about that that screams, this is a good idea to me at this point. Nothing. So it's important to remember that no matter what is going on, no matter what the situation is, we have to remember that recovery is job one. Anything else that goes on with people, money, things, the world, uh-uh. Every morning I read the words, we cannot carry the burdens of the world on our shoulders. And those of us who have tried to carry the burdens of others are soon overcome by them. And those are words that I live by as best I can. And if you're wondering where those words are, they are on page 132. And it says, I will quote on page 132, first full paragraph beginning with, we have been speaking to you. And this is a paragraph I read every morning because I need to hear it. At the toward the end of this paragraph, it says, uh, not toward the end. We it says we try not to indulge in uh, in the middle. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. When we see a man sinking into the mire that is alcoholism, we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal. For his sake, we do recount and almost relive the horrors of our past. But those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by them. Those are words, you can go back to page 100 now. Those are words that I try to live by every day. Yes, certain friends of mine have issues that do weigh on me a little more than others. But I realize at a very high level, there's nothing I can do about these things. Absolutely nothing I can do. I can love them. I can adore them. I cannot fix them. They're not broken. They're not broken. I can't fix anybody. So these are things which have to be remembered all the time. You are a sponsor. You are not God. 
very important. The next paragraph that we're going to read is the 12-step promises. These promises are coming true beautifully in my life and have for years. Let's take a look at the next paragraph on page 100, the 12th step promises, and they are beautiful and it is pure poetry. Let's take a look. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. Let's stop right there for just a minute. I want to remind you that I'm very lucky to be alive. Doctors have been signing my death certificate from the time I was a little boy. I was 17 years old and I broke my ankle in gym class. And we, my mother and I went to Edgewater Hospital, which isn't even there anymore. It's a, um, it's condos now. Edgewater Hospital is condos now. And we went to Edgewater Hospital and Dr. Bernstein, who's also been dead for a long time, he looked over his glasses and he yelled at my mother. He said, Virginia, my mother's name was Virginia. Virginia, he's not going to live very long. He is 17 years old and he is over 300 pounds. How long do you think he's going to live? What are you and Max doing? My father's name was Max. My mother started crying. I was ashamed. I felt horrible. And my mom and I went for ice cream on the way home and vowed that the next day I would stay on my diet. It's been a long journey. I am not alone in this. None of you came in here on a roll. None of you came in here because things were going well for you. You came in here because of the pain, the shame, the torture, the hell, and the absolute physical and mental anguish of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I came in at 24 years of age. It's been a long journey. And it says here, if you persist, remarkable things will happen. Well, the first most obvious thing that happened is I'm still alive. And this morning, now I don't, I don't, didn't do it this morning because it's Saturday. Yesterday morning, I walked three miles. Now it takes me about an hour and a half to walk three miles, but I finish. I finish six days a week, most weeks. It may take me a long time. I'm kind of a slowpoke. I'm not exactly uh, Speedy Gonzalez out there walking, but I finish and I'm damn proud of it. And you know what? My bills are paid. My house on June the 30th, I will be living here for eight years. Is this my dream house? Hell no. Is this the house I fantasized about when I was younger? Hell no. But I've made some money owning it. And it keeps me warm in the winter and it keeps me cool in the summer and it protects me from the rain and it's mine. I can sell it. I can rent it out. Hell, I could even burn it down. No, I can't because I have a mortgage, but I could, I can do anything I want with it. It's mine. It belongs to me. Yes, I have a mortgage, but I can do whatever I want with it because it's mine. 
I have a bank account, actually a few of them. I have solvency in my finances. I can hold my head up high. I am no longer the object of ridicule as I walk out into the world. Children used to laugh at me. Adults used to laugh at me. I was an object of ridicule and I am no longer that. I can get in and out of a car. I can wear clothes. Not only can I wear clothes, I can buy them at a normal store. See this shirt I'm wearing? This is a Mather High School t-shirt. Why is it so special to me? Because it's the same shirt that you would buy if you were a student at Mather High School. And when I was a student at Mather High School, I couldn't buy the t-shirts and have them fit because I was too fat. This shirt is actually a little big on me. So this shirt represents many, many hundreds of miracles coming together. I also can wear clothes in the house. I remember I had to peel off my clothes when I would walk in the house because they were two, three sizes too small. I was so uncomfortable. I couldn't wear clothes. I would walk around in my underwear all the time. Now, try not to get an image. I know some of you are brecking or whatever you're doing. Try not to get an image. But I couldn't wear clothes in my home because nothing fit. Today, I'm wearing my pants. I can get in and out of a chair. I can stand up from a chair and be okay. I, ha I had an embarrassing moment, though. I was at an art museum uh, earlier this year with someone very special to me, and I couldn't get up. The, 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 the bench was too low and I had to get help from the guy. So it was like reminiscent of the old days. And I was very embarrassed. I was very ashamed, very taken aback emotionally, you know, but I got up and I was okay. But it was like, oh God, really? Are we still there again? Oh my God. It was like a moment in time, like, oh no, but it, it worked out okay. It worked out okay. They got somebody and the guy helped me up and I was fine, but it was quite embarrassing for me. But the bottom line is I can, I can function. I can get in and out of a car. I can get in and out of a car. All right. I'm not going to regale you with all kinds of, of, of stories about all this other stuff. You get the picture. But these are some, but not all of the miracles in my life. And he says, the path of spiritual progress, I am healing in areas I didn't even know were broken. Let's continue with these promises. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. Today, I find myself patient where I could not be patient before. I find myself loving toward people that have hurt me. I find myself understanding. I find myself in positions where I'm very human. I fail. I say stupid things. I do stupid things. I am not a bastion of recovery. I'm not a pillar of spiritual growth. I'm human. But I do find often 
that there is an intuitive thought, there's an intuitive part of me that I didn't even know was there until the food was down for a long time and I do a lot of work. It's not just about putting the food down. And I wanna make that very, very clear. There is more to this than putting down the food. There is the work that I do not just the meetings that I go to, not just the questions that I answer or the phone calls that I take, although that's all part of it. It's the inventories that I do where I learn about myself. And I am amazed most of the time at some of the things that I'm able to understand that I couldn't understand in the food. It was beyond my grasp. And I have a better life. I have a better life. Let's continue. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. How true that is for me. I could never have gotten to this point. Yes, there are things about my life that I wish were different, but here is what I can tell you. I have traveled the world doing workshops, retreats, conventions for this program. I have friends everywhere I go in this program. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I love them. Hopefully they love me, whether they do or not is their business. But when I am in need of someone, OA is there for me. When I was going through my divorce in the summer of 2010, 13 years ago, when I was going through that divorce, my phone did not stop ringing. I went through those first few weeks of living on my own with two German shepherds in a small little one bedroom apartment, and my phone did not stop ringing. I went through that divorce. I've gone through downturns in my business. I've gone through all the things that life had to offer, the conveyor belt that is life itself that was destined to be my fate, was met with love and understanding and the presence of people and God that loved me enough to reach out to me and say, I care about you. We care about you. That's a lot. Yes, maybe you guys didn't bring my wife back, or maybe you couldn't bring my mom back or my dad back, but you made it so much more palatable by loving me enough to not put up with my bullshit and love me through and encourage me. A hug, a hand, a prayer, a call, a word. Those are the things which made the difference between life and death for me. That you will tell me at times, there's 160 of you here today. You will send me messages about how I saved your life or my podcast did this. And I appreciate those things. But let me assure you of something. There is nothing in me that could possibly give back to this organization of what it gave me. Nothing I have would make a dent in what this organization gave me. And when I say this organization, 
I mean each and every one of you, the people that I've gone to meetings with, not just in Chicago, which is where I started, but in Eugene, Oregon, there is no OA there. There's no such thing. I went to the New Freedom AA group on Coburg Road, and I went there for years. And that's where I got abstinent in 90, 1998. I got abstinent while we were living in Eugene, Oregon. And when I had my plastic surgery in Eugene, Oregon, those guys and gals from that AA group, they came to see me in the hospital and they visited me and they brought me their love and they brought me their prayers. And when I've gone through my knee replacements and my hip replacements, yes, you guys were there too, with a prayer, with a visit, with a word, with anything, a card, something, you guys showed up and you let me know that I was not alone. This is a tough journey, tougher for some than others, but it's a journey of pain and a journey of pleasure and a journey of ups and a journey of downs. And no matter what happened, as I navigated my way from one day to the next, you guys were there for me. You showed up when you didn't have to. You showed up and you gave of yourself so that I could muster the courage to go through one more day. And to that end, I thank you. All right, let's go to follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. Notice it doesn't say follow the suggestions. Notice it doesn't say follow the inferences. It says follow the dictates. So that means I have to do what the big book tells me to do and avoid doing what the big book warns me not to do. So if I follow the dictates of a higher power, I will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what my present circumstances. I live in a good world. You know, I, um, I often love self-pity. Oh, if you could bottle self-pity, you'd not crack and fentanyl and all, you'd knock them right out of existence. If you could if you could bottle self-pity, oh my God, the pharmaceutical companies would be bankrupt. Their CEOs would be delivering for DoorDash. But the bottom line is, is that you have a situation where I'm privy to that too. But what I do have is a very good life, although sometimes I'm too stupid to see it. Sometimes I can't see the forest through the trees. And sometimes, every once in a while, I need you guys to remind me, yeah, I wish I had that time back, or I wish this could be different, or that could be different. But when I look at the here and now, I've got a pretty damn good life. So these are the 12-step promises as laid out in the big book of AA. And I find that they are coming true for me more and more and more every day. Every day. I have done a lot of work on myself over the years. I've had a lot of help. I've had a lot of great sponsorship. I'm a very lucky man, and it has changed me. Let's continue. 
when working with a man and his family, we don't necessarily even know the family, let alone work with them. You should take care not to participate in their quarrels. You may spoil your chance of being helpful if you do, but urge upon a man's family that he has been a very sick person and should be treated accordingly. You should warn against arousing resentment or jealousy. You should point out that his defects of character are not going to disappear overnight. Let me assure you of something about defects of character, at least from my perspective. They never disappear. We have this wording that says, they be removed. They are not removed permanently. My ego resurrects itself gorgeously. I've said this before in this forum. I'll say it again. If every organ in the body, every tissue in the body resurrected to the power of the ego, we would live to be 8,000 years old. We would never, probably never die because the ego is that strong. So fear and anger and selfish, self-seeking and dishonesty, they are going to manifest themselves. They are going to manifest themselves. It is up to me to work the steps to diminish them, but they never really go away. Show them that he has entered upon a period of growth. Ask them to remember when they are impatient, the blessed fact of his sobriety. Every day, I try not to focus on what's wrong. And that's why I read the words in the acceptance chapter. It says, there's, I had to focus on the, the, the solution, not the problem. I had to focus not on what's wrong with the world, but what's wrong with me and in my attitudes, because that's the only thing I can work on. And there's a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us. And I do not want to be that chief critic. I do not want to point out imperfections. Sometimes I do, I'm human, but I don't really want to be that person. I want to be a person that trusts God and I want to be a person who's in recovery. Very important for me to, to remember that. If you have been successful in solving your own domestic problems, tell the newcomer's family how that was accomplished. Again, in 99% of the cases, you're not going to have contact with their family. This was written at a time when there was Akron and there was New York. And these guys all lived very, very close to one another. There was no great geographic distance from one from the other. When they needed to talk about something, they'd go over and knock on the guy's door. Not everybody had a phone. This was the height of the depression. Don't assume everybody had a telephone because some did, some didn't. If you, if in this way you can set them on the right track without becoming critical of them, the story of how you and your wife settled your difficulties is worth any amount of criticism. I will share with you what I have gone through, but I'm not going to sit and you know tell you what to do. I'm not going. I'm not a, a relationship expert by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist. I'm none of those things. I am just a person in recovery. So I don't want to overstep my bounds. Assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said we must not go where liquor is served. 
We must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink. We must avoid moving pictures which show drinking scenes. We must not go into bars. Our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses. We mustn't think or be reminded about alcohol at all. We meet these conditions. Oh, our experience shows us that this is not necessarily so. Some of the meetings were unknown to me, but some of them prohibit mentioning food. The big book mentions whiskey, ale, rum, uh, beer, ale, highballs. It mentions all martinis. It mentions all kinds of, of alcohol. If I say Chips Ahoy or McDonald's French fries, or I say Chunky Bars or whatever it is, and you run out and eat those things, you are going to anyway. Is there anybody here that doesn't realize that at every grocery store you go to, every drugstore you go to, they sell ice cream and candy and cookies and all manner of stuff? I don't think there's any of you that don't realize that. So the mentioning of food shouldn't be pornographicized. In other words, I'm not going to sit and, oh, the cheese was so good or the chocolate. No, 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 no. But I can mention things because what we're going to see is, well, I'm going to let the big book tell you, but these ideas, you know, I'm going to, well, it's the round thing that comes in a square box and they cut it into triangles. Why don't you just say pizza? Why the hell don't you just say pizza and move on? Who are you kidding? You know, the frozen stuff that you have in your freezer that comes in the box. Why don't you just say freaking ice cream? I mean, what do you think? I'm going to go run out and eat ice cream because you said ice cream. Come on, come on. I'm either in recovery or I'm not. We meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There is something the matter with his spiritual status. His only chance for sobriety would be someplace like the Greenland ice cap. And even there, an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle of scotch. See, the big book mentions scotch and ruin everything. Ask any woman who has sent her husband to distant places on the theory he would escape the alcohol problem. In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. Are you going to wear blinders every time you drive down the street? You're going to hurt a lot of people. You're going to kill yourself and possibly others because you can't drive down the street in any city I've ever been in and not see restaurants and not see billboards and not see all kinds of things. We sell this and, you know, taco and beef and hamburgers and whatever it is. Unless you're going to wear blinders, you're going to be confronting this every day, every day of your life. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We have tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. Don't get all hung up about, oh, he mentioned food. Oh, my God. Um, come on. Come on. You're either in recovery or you're not. Good gravy, man. What the hell? You either are in fit spiritual condition or you're not. And me mentioning ice cream 
is not should not trigger a person to go eat it. You're either gonna anyway or you're not gonna anyway. Come on. So our rule is not to avoid a place where there is drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. I'm not gonna deliberately start regaling you with foods. If I mention it within the context of a story or a share, it's okay. That includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, even plain ordinary whoopee parties. I got to admit, I've been to a lot of parties in my life. I've never been to a whoopee party. Maybe before I die, somebody can throw a whoopee party so I can say I've been to a whoopee party. I'm not even quite sure what the heck that is, unless you're just going to walk in the door and everybody's going to yell whoopee. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what a whoopee party is. To a person who has had experience with an alcoholic, this may seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. Now, let's review a little bit about what we've covered today. Sponsorship is a responsibility. You are not in the results business. You are just responsible for guiding the person through the steps. If they want to recover, they will. Bring them through quickly. If they don't want to recover, they won't. Don't get involved in the domestic disputes. Don't get involved in anybody's domestic situation at all. We are not marriage counselors. We are not therapists. We're not psychologists. We're not psychiatrists. We're not any of those things. If you are those things, put it aside within the context of sponsorship. Do not go in. Don't color outside the lines. I used to go to a meeting with a lady named Ray. She's dead now. She's been dead for a long time. I used to go to meetings with her many, 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 many years ago. And she used to say, don't color outside the lines. Don't color. She used to say that all the time. And it was so cute. But anyway, yeah, don't color outside the lines. Stick to what you know. Stick to what you know. And what do you know? You know how to go through the chapters in the book that guide the person to work the steps. Don't be afraid of mentioning food. Don't be afraid to say peanut butter or whatever, ice cream, whatever. If it makes sense to say it, don't deliberately be a nudnik. Nudnik is a Yiddish word for like a nudge or a, a pest. You know, don't do that. But don't be afraid of it either. And remember those 12-step promises that there is a beautiful, beautiful world for those of us who are in recovery, who work our butts off. There are promises and wonderment and miracles beyond our wildest dreams. This was never intended to be just something that stopped you from eating. That's not what this is. This is Overeaters Anonymous. And in the working of these very, very magical steps, there are things that are going to abound in your life, miracles that will happen. And some will be very different from what you want right now. But most of them will be beyond your wildest dreams. I've seen situations righted that were very, very fragmented. I've seen things in my 44 years in these rooms that make one really wonder, is it a dream? No, it's real. I've seen things happen that couldn't happen any other way. You know, I'll, I'll leave you with this little story. I have a friend of mine 
They live in Colorado. And every time this person comes out to Los Angeles for the birthday, they love to organize trips to the beach. And they go out to the beach in Santa something. They go out to the beach. What's the name of that big pier? Santa Monica, Santa Monica. They go out to the Santa Monica beach every morning that the birth, the birthday is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And they come back and they say, oh, what a miracle. Oh, what a miracle. Oh, what a miracle. Well, that isn't really a miracle. I don't want to get in her face about it, but it's really not a miracle. A miracle is defined as something which occurs where there is no scientific nor logical explanation for it. Do you know who the miracles are in OA today? They're not sunrises or sunsets or stars or rivers or oceans or Lake Michigan. They are you. They are you. Every one of you is a miracle because you're here now. And even if you're not here now, if you're listening on the podcast or if you've never heard of me or any of this, you in a way are the miracles because you have a fatal disease that is permanent and progressive. And yet through the working of these steps, you are still alive. Not only have we been released from our desire to eat this food that's killing us, uh, in our release, we are happy about it. We are happy in our release. The greatest miracle in Overeaters to Anonymous today is the person that you see in the mirror every day. You are that miracle. Make miracles happen for others by recovering and sponsoring the hell of your life in God's hands will be your greatest asset and God can use it to save their lives. Okay. I'm going to turn it back over, but I'm going to, before I turn it back over to Nancy, I think, 